You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season 10, episode 13. Juanita Campbell Rasmus is a speaker, writer, spiritual director, and contemplative teacher. She is the co-pastor of St. John's United Methodist Church in downtown Houston, which she founded with her husband, Rudy, in 1992. Juanita's biography includes an exceptional list of contributions in both social and spiritual domains, including serving on the board of directors for Richard Foster's Renovari Institute, teaming up with Beyonce and Tina Knowles Lawson to help 40,000 flood victims recover in the wake of Hurricane Harvey, and founding the Art Project Houston in efforts to empower the city's homeless to become hope-filled painters and artisans, crafting their own livelihood and creating lives filled with new possibilities. In this episode, Juanita shares with me how a major depressive episode became the catalyst for personal renewal. Following our season 10 theme of restoration for the heart of the artist, Juanita's story and her accompanying book, Learning to Be, Finding Your Center After the Bottom Falls Out, offers a glimpse of hope for the artist to find renewal no matter how dark the night. Patrons of the podcast can enjoy an additional interview segment with Juanita on the key spiritual practices that helped her return to her center and discover new ways of being. This is my interview with spiritual director and author Juanita Rasmus. Juanita, thank you so much for joining me today on the Makers and Mystics podcast. I am so excited to have you on the show. Stephen, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. You know, we were talking before the recording here, and I mentioned that on this season of the podcast, we've been focused on restoration for the heart of the artist. And when I came across your book, Learning to Be, I knew that your voice was going to be a vital contribution to this conversation. And so I've read over your book over the past week, and I've got a handful of questions here that I can't wait to dive in with you. Let's do it. In the opening chapter of your book, you relayed a story about a time when you dealt with a bout of sickness, which you called the crash. And you later realized that this crash was actually a catalyst of sorts. Would you share with our audience a bit about what this bout of sickness was and how you came to understand this crash as a catalyst. Well, sure. Thanks, Stephen. So let me give you a little backstory. One, my husband and I are, uh, are co-pastors, um, and we started with a church that had nine members. And at the time of my crash, our church had grown from nine members to 3,500 members. <laughs> and it was my husband and I and a secretary, and we were both carrying way too much for, for uh, two people to be responsible for. And so there was a lot of pushing, striving uh, uh, energy going Going on a lot of you know got to make it happen a lot of the you know traditional american perspective on how things happen you know <laughs> uh the the idea that you've got to do something to have something to be somebody and so uh we were both entrepreneurial and so for us we were it, it could have been uh the absolute best place to be uh especially for me because i found out uh, through the crash so much about myself uh, that I would not have been able to name and identify had I not gone through it. 
the crash basically uh, was one particular morning. I got up. We had two young daughters who were in middle school at the time. And um, so with our lives being as busy as they were, breakfast was sometimes the, <laughs> you know, the real meal where we got to be together. Yes. So I would try to make it special. And um, this particular morning, I'll always remember it. It was a Friday morning. Um, it was the beginning of the school year. And my husband said after breakfast, would you like me to take the kids to school? And then that way you can put on your makeup. I mean, you could, he said you can finish getting dressed. And I said, that'd be great. And then I responded, that way I can put my makeup on in the bathroom instead of the rearview <laughs> mirror. And, and anybody out there with children knows exactly what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> uh, trying to multitask, as they say. And so we hugged each other, hugged the kids and said goodbye. Have a great day. I go in the bathroom. Get ready to put on my makeup. And all of a sudden, I just feel terrible. I feel sick. It's the, the thing that I think some people can relate to is when all of a sudden you feel like you're coming down with the flu and it's, it's just like hits you like a ton of bricks, right? Well, I was having that kind of overwhelming sensation. And at the same time, the other thing that I was feeling is, you know how you take dry spaghetti? And you hold it in your hands and you put pressure on both sides to pop it so that you can, you know, break the spaghetti to fit into your pot. Right. Mm -hmm. I felt as though every nerve in my body was popping like that spaghetti and I could feel it. And so I called our secretary and I said, you know, I'm not feeling well. I think maybe if I uh, lay down for a little bit, could you reschedule my appointments and I'll come in at noon? And I hung up the phone and it was our house phone. I picked up the phone, I hit redial, and I saw myself, Stephen, it was like an out-of-body experience. Mm. Hit redial, she answered the phone, and I said, I'm not feeling well. I'm not coming in. I don't know if I'm ever coming back. I'm going to take a sabbatical or a medical leave or something. And I hung up the phone, got in the bed, and proceeded to sleep 18 to 20 hours a day for weeks. Wow. My husband said after two weeks, he said, baby, this isn't just exhaustion. Something else is going on. And so I arranged to see my physician. She did a bunch of blood work trying to figure out what was going on, why I was having this overwhelming exhaustion, why I couldn't really seem to function, um, I, why I couldn't think well, think clearly. Long story short, she recommended I see a psychiatrist, and I did at that point. She could have said, I need you to see a veterinarian. And I would have said, do I wag my tail when I go in? Do I need to bark loud? What do I do? Right? Uh, because I was just at wit's end as to what was going on. And so after uh, about an hour and a half with the psychiatrist, she said, I am diagnosing you with a major depressive episode. Mm -hmm. And I had, not, I had heard of depression, um, but I asked her, I said, have I had a nervous breakdown? And she said, well, there's no such thing as a nervous breakdown in the DSM-4, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual for Diagnosing Mental Health Conditions, right? And I was thinking to myself, you know, my grandmother doesn't know anything about the DSM-4, but I bet she'd say this was a nervous breakdown. Mm -hmm. And that preceded or, or began, I should say, uh, my experience with living with a mental health diagnosis. And Stephen, I want your audience to hear me say living with a mental health diagnosis. So often in our recovery world, and I thank God for recovery programs and systems, and I support them, 
But there are some things that at times we're going to have to learn to live with. Mm. And for me, uh, learning to be is about learning to be with whatever circumstance, condition, or situation shows up and answering really two critical questions. And the first one is, who am I? So for the me, the crash became literally the undoing of everything that I thought made Juanita Juanita. All the ways that I tried to show up in the world as, and here's my narrative speaking, okay? A good little girl, a good <laughs> wife, a good pastor, a good mother, a good friend. And you know what I came to realize, Stephen? All that energy of trying to be good water. I started to say a cuss word, but I won't. That's okay. Talk, <laughs> my husband taught me these French words, and I'll just say H-E double hockey sticks. <laughs> it wore me out. And it wore me down and it burned me out. And so part of the crash for me, when you ask, how did it become a catalyst? It became the catalyst of realizing how my narrative had been driving my life mm -hmm. and how I had come to the end of the life that narrative had offered. You said in your book that it was a complex mix of stress, disappointment, grief, compassion fatigue, vicarious trauma, and discouragement that had been building for weeks, months, years, but you had discounted the warning signs. Now that you see that in hindsight, what would you say some of those warning signs were for you? Well, you know, and it's, it's really funny because when you're in that space, you don't necessarily think of it as warning signs, you know, uh, like you said, the vision is so much better after the experience. <laughs> um, but but one of them was the fact that within about a month, I had three car wrecks. And here I am, a person who has driven for years, never had a car wreck. And then all of a sudden you have three wrecks in one month. And, and it was amazing to me because all I, I would ever think when I was in one was, I'm glad I've got insurance. And that was it. You know, mm. nobody was ever hurt. One of them, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a setup on one of them. Stephen, there's a, a street in Houston called Yale, and it goes under a, a railroad track, right? And so as you're approaching the railroad track and you're going under it, I was in that space where I'm going under and I was so wound up. I was so, I couldn't rest. It was as though I was so I was wound up like the ever ready bunny. And, you know, there's a place when you wind something and you keep winding and you pass that stopping point and then the thing just kind of unravels. That's what was happening with me. Mm -hmm. And I remember this one particular day being in the car and I have a meditation CD playing. Everybody who knows a meditation CD, there's always this warning. Do not operate vehicles while listening to this meditation, right? So I have my meditation CD in. I grabbed some incense before I left out the house. And I'm thinking, I'll just make my car a Zen temple so I can get myself <laughs> together, right? Got the meditation CD going. I stuck the cigarette lighter in to light the incense. Now, lighting incense in your car. <laughs> That should be a red flag to anybody. I don't know. Back in my hippie days, that was a normal practice for me. <laughs> but it wasn't normal for me. And that's, so here's what I want to say to people. Notice what you're noticing. Mm -hmm. Notice when you're operating out of character. 
Yes. So I That's switch good. the red lighter, light the incense. I drop the lighter, take my foot off the brake, hit the car in front of me. And that was one of three accidents. Okay. Mm-hmm. Notice what you're noticing. Yes, that's good. I wasn't paying attention to ways that I was responding that was really out of character for me. Um, one of the things, I'm so grateful for this, one of the women that I talk about in the book, Regina Hassan, told me, she said, Juanita, I noticed something about you. She said that at the time, now I have to say I, I, I use it to my advantage sometimes, but at the time, she said, I noticed that when you're really wound too tight, you curse. Interesting. And see, normally the good little girl didn't curse. Mm-hmm. Now, as an instructor and a teacher, sometimes I throw a bomb in because I know it's <laughs> going to get response, right? But but she noticed that about me. Mm-hmm. And so then I got the awareness so I could start noticing it about myself that when I was wound too tight, I would curse. Mm-hmm. And there were other things that let me know I would eat too much, right? Then there were spaces where I wasn't getting enough sleep and then other spaces where I slept too much. And so when you start noticing that there's a disconnect, that there's a lack of balance, and I hate the word balance. I prefer the word harmony. When you're not seeing a rhythm, a harmony in your life that you know is your normal harmony, right? Then notice what you're noticing. Yes. I was addicted to approval and acceptance. And all I could think of was do more, have more, be somebody. Mm -hmm. That was the narrative that was playing in my head. I love what you said. Notice when you're operating out of character and notice what you notice. And when you you just mentioned you were addicted to approval and acceptance. And that's something that I've walked through in my own life. And I think that many people, as you know, the Makers and Mystics audience is primarily comprised of artists and creatives, performers, people hey, going after y'all. things. <laughs> that's right. I'm sending you love. But you know, that's something that I think a lot of us in the creative sectors and quite honestly, just anybody on social media these days, as far as that goes. But that addiction to approval and acceptance is something that can drive our motivations, even when we're not recognizing that we're functioning out of that. And so it's refreshing to hear you say that that was one of the things you concluded and that you recognized about yourself as you began acting out of character and using all kinds of fun language. (laughs) Fun and colorful, fun and colorful. Yes. Well, one thing I really enjoy about your book as you walk the reader through this process is you began to pull from St. John of the Cross. You began to talk about St. Ignatius and some of these practices that I'm very familiar with and that we've talked about a lot on Makers and Mystics over the years. But on page 32 of your book, you talk about being purged of all your attachments to who you believed yourself to be and who you believed God to be. And that was inspired by the dark night of the soul from St. John of the Cross. I'd love to hear you speak into that a bit. What was it like for you as you began to purge those attachments to who you believed yourself to be? And how did St. John of the Cross play into all of that? Well, you know, one of the things is, I don't wanna make it sound as though I was doing the purging. 
Mm -hmm. uh, the purging was happening. Right? <laughs> Whether you wanted it to or not, right? It's, it's exactly. It's kind <laughs> of like when you have something that you digest and all of a sudden you find yourself regurgitating. It's not like you trying to. <laughs> <laughs> and so what began to happen for me is that this this was a process that was over about a three-year period of time. The most intense part of it was probably the first uh, 12 months or so. But I was at home for the majority of the day, so I was in, in a lot of silence. I was certainly experiencing solitude because my husband and children were at school and at work, and then they would come home in the evening, just as most families do, right? Mm -hmm. But during that time, I was very aware that everything that I thought made me Juanita could not get me out of the bed. My husband and I had won a number of awards, which certainly fed into my addiction, uh, denominational awards because of the rapid growth of our church and, and the work we were doing and still remain to this day doing with the homeless and those in the community who are experiencing plight, right? And as I lay there, unable to get off the sofa, unable to get out of bed, there was just this realization of this sense of what had I been doing all this striving for? You know, what was all this in the contemporary, the young people like to say grinding? <laughs> you know, what, what was I doing all that grinding for? What was that all about? And I had to realize that my narrative had been driving me and that the basis of being a good little girl, even though I was 37 at the time, uh, the basis of that was rooted in not feeling that I was acceptable, not feeling that I was valued or worthy. And so ultimately it becomes, who was I expecting this sense of worthiness from? And then when you boil it down, it becomes God, however you choose to name God. You know, um, that I didn't feel worthy. I didn't feel acceptable. Over that time further, I began to unwind the story. And some of this was the Holy Spirit revealing stuff to me. So that's why I said the purging wasn't something I like signed up for. They wanted <laughs> purging. Everybody show up with your dark pants on because you're going to need dark clothes, you know, whatever. <laughs> uh -oh. And so it was this extended silence and solitude that began to help me unravel who I had been prior to that experience. And here was the thing, who was I being invited to become? And that's really what this dark night of the soul is about. And that's what St. John of the Cross talks about. And I love the fact, I was listening to something uh, this morning that was a reflection on St. John of the Cross. St. John of the Cross treats the process of the dark night of the soul like it's lovers, you know, mm -hmm. longing for one another. I can't say I was feeling that. <laughs> I appreciate his language. And now, some many years later, I can say, yes, that's what it was. Mm -hmm. But at the time, it didn't feel, I couldn't identify myself as a lover. And even, I couldn't even identify God as a lover. Mm -hmm. And so in that process of disorientation, as Walter Brueggemann likes to talk about the song, oh, right? Yes. 
that process of disorientation, I was given an invitation not only to redefine who I was, but to come to know who God really was. Mm -hmm. Because up until that point, my God was still the God of my childhood, very punitive. Don't step out of line. Make sure you follow the rules. And I'm a one on the Enneagram. So all of that fit into who I was as a one, you know, follow the rules. And for me as a one on the Enneagram, if you tell me these are the margins that I'm going to widen them so I can make sure that I stay within the guidelines of what is what right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in that process, God began to help me to see some things that I had no understanding of, like the fact that it was expected that I should have been a boy mm -hmm. for my parents, both culturally and socially. The idea is that the firstborn is a boy mm -hmm. to bear the father's name, right? And so very early on, that message got into my being. Mm -hmm. My parents have never said anything to me that I consciously know of about having wanted a boy. Matter of fact, I, when I got the awareness a number of years later, I asked them, I said, did you guys want a boy? And they said, no, we were so happy to have you, blah, 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 blah. But then years even later, when my grandson was born, my mother said, finally, we get our boy. So see, this was something perhaps that was even buried in her subconscious. And we now know that what the mother thinks about in the womb is affecting the child, is affecting the embryo. And so all of that, this was an unearthing. This was a inner healing. This was a deep trudging away of what wasn't the divine Juanita that had been placed and known even before she was placed in her mother's womb. And so it was coming to that kind of knowing. It was coming to that kind of awareness. And in the beauty of that, in the words of St. John of the Cross and St. Teresa of Avila, who loved to say, and all shall be well. That was the sense that I had, is that this is difficult, but stay the course, mm -hmm. because all shall be well. And in the end, I can say like St. John of the Cross, I found my lover mm -hmm. and my lover found me. Well, when you were on this journey of both self-discovery and also discovering things about God, perhaps, that you hadn't learned before, you said that you settled into the kindness and the incredible peace of God. It was a kind of peace that you had heard spoken of by those who had experienced near-death episodes but you were surrounded by a love that you had never experienced before, a love that was dense and filled the space all around me. And you said that this love stayed with you from that point on in the bottom of that dark pit. Can you tell me more about that experience? What shifted for you? What, what happened that, that helped you embrace not a punitive view of God, but to recognize, because I think one of the beauties of what the Christian faith offers is it's, God tends to show up in the messy middle and tends to show up in all the wrong places and tends to show up at that that dark point. And earlier in the season, I had a conversation with 
Blaine Hogan, who's a filmmaker. And in our conversation, he talked about the gift of hitting rock bottom. Oh, yes. You know, and so I'm, I'd just love to know more about your story about that moment when it shifted and you began to, to recognize some of the peace and kindness that maybe you hadn't experienced before. Yes. So let me say this. During this time, I was having um, these experiences where, again, I'm sleeping 18 to 20 hours a day. The time when I am awake, I'm really kind of lethargic. And over time, and with medication, with seeing a psychiatrist, with seeing a psychotherapist and my spiritual director, there was support for me, right? But what was happening is that every day I would wake up as though I had just spent the whole night falling into this dark tunnel. And I was fighting it because there was this strong and overwhelming sense that if I got to the bottom, I was going to die. And I, it felt as though it was going to be a physical death, right? And so this tunnel for me, it was as though it was a bricked tunnel. And I kept thinking if I could just grab hold to a loose brick on each side, I could hold myself up. You know, I don't know what I thought was going to happen if I held myself up. But I can't tell you how many days, how many nights I awakened having struggled all night to try to keep from falling. When I finally failed is when I wrote the piece about what it felt like to be surrounded by that kind of love that was just it was it was in the air it was it was it was what i was breathing it was penetrating through the pores in my body and when i <laughs> i remembered that in the recovery community we have a large recovery community in st john's they always say uh that in essence nothing's going to happen to you hit rock bottom and even with that intellectual understanding, I couldn't pray to hit rock bottom. It was terrifying to imagine what it might be like. But when I hit rock bottom, a way that I, I uh, experienced it, and it just so happened I was talking to my trainer about this this morning. I said, when I hit rock bottom, it was the equivalent of if you were to pull or peel the roof off of your house and there were to be four chairs by a warm fire and a cozy blanket and some maybe hot tea. And there are three people waiting there for you. And you get lowered in from the roof into the fourth chair. One is the Holy Spirit. One is Jesus. And the other was God. And they have been saving this chair for you. I was overwhelmed. Even thinking about it, I still feel this amazing sense of acceptance and love. And it was as though they were saying, we've been waiting on you. <laughs> waiting on you to stop struggling. Here's the reality. Waiting on me to let go. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to bring up Howard Thurman into the conversation because he's one of my heroes. And we did an artist profile on Howard Thurman, I think last year or maybe the year before. So we do a artist profile series and he was one of the characters that I chose to write about. So I'll send it to you. You can listen to please, it. Please, please. <laughs> See if I got it right. <laughs> but I want to bring up Howard Thurman because you quote him in the book during this experience that we're talking about. And the quote comes from his book, The Creative Encounter. 
And he says, religious experience in its profoundest dimensions is the finding of man by God and the finding of God by man. It is in his religious experience that he sees himself from another point of view. In a very real sense, he is stripped of everything and he stands with no possible protection. The new center is found. I love that. The new center. The new center is found, and it is often like giving birth to a new self. And you talked about how you related to that experience in explaining your own encounter that became a place of communion. Yeah, I wonder if you could elaborate on that a little bit. When I found Howard Thurman, uh, let me say this. Um, so Richard Foster and Dallas Willard have been not only amazing uh, mentors, but I have had the privilege to call them friends. Mm -hmm. And I've served with them in Richard's ministry, Renovare, and served with Richard now. When I found Howard Thurman, I, I kept saying to myself along this journey, where are the Black mystics? Mm -hmm. I felt this longing that there was going to be someone whose voice resonated with mine, right? Mm -hmm. And when I found Howard Thurman, I found what I had been longing for and looking for. And I found others since him, St. Augustine, you know, many don't realize that he was African. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you know, we, <laughs> we unfortunately right. have whitewashed the faces of many people. That's um, right. But what Howard Thurman did for me was to help me at that point, it galvanized what I had been feeling about the self. You see, many of us find the center of ourself outside of ourself, right? And that comes from, I think, especially in the Western world and particularly in America, when we're a nation that's been rooted in people who came here, I'm talking about Europeans, who came here, some as indentured servants. They had something to prove, right? They were working off an indebtedness, and then they had to do something so they could have something so they could be someone. And so the culture in America is one of doing. And that means the center gets placed on the outside of us. Because then we're responding to what other people think we ought to be doing. You know, the ballerina, who the girl who longs to be a ballerina becomes an engineer because her parents say you can't make any money being a ballerina. The artist, how many artists have I worked with, coached, uh, supported and encouraged because they were told you'll be a starving artist. Right. And they internalize that, and that in turn puts their center outside of them. Mm -hmm. The reminder for us is that the dark night of the soul helps us to rebring that center back into us. And we get re-engaged with our six mental faculties, our will, our imagination our intuition, our memory, which not only works from the past, but memory can work for our future. Mm -hmm. Our perception, 
becomes internalized again. Our reason, it goes back to being within us, our center. We're no longer expecting that we're having to think the way other people think. I love the story of Walt Disney. When he conceptualized Walt Disney World in Florida, he never saw the, the, the ribbon cut because he died I think it was two years before they got to that place, right? And his wife is on the dais and um, they're doing the ribbon cut and celebrating. And a person leans over to his wife and says, oh, isn't it a sad thing that Walt couldn't be here to see this? You see, that's, that's that center being on the outside, right? The wife responded, but we're all here because Walt did see it. That's <laughs> so good. That's yes. what happens when we get back to our center, to the self that Thurman is talking about. When we come to that center, when we come to that place where we have that knowing and we're operating out of intuition, where and the intuition is inviting our imagination in new ways, inviting us as in the in the case of an artist who works with paint to layer where before you were doing one coat of paint. Now you see the beauty of 10 layers and then coming back and scratching through and getting the depths and seeing all that majesty and color, right? When we're coming out of the center, there's something authentic and creative and, and, and mystical and profound about how we live our lives, how we show up as partners, how we show up as parents, how we show up as, as the beloved mm -hmm. in our world. And right now, our world needs us to show up as the beloved. Yes, that's right. Operating out of the center of our being, not having our centers rooted on the outside of us, based on other people's expectations, what they think we should do or shouldn't do or ought to do. That's so good. I wanna bring this to another part of the book. It ties right into this, but on page 62, you talk about the false self. And in our self-absorbed world, one of the chief problems is misappropriated pride that results in self-pity and the need for approval. And everything you just now spoke to seems a bit of an antidote to that self-absorption that is rampant in society these days, would you say? Yeah, oh, absolutely. You know, we are such uh, an individualist society, right? Mm -hmm. I, I've got to get mine. I've got to make sure I'm taken care of, which really, you know, I often look at the temptations of Jesus, and what I see is really there's two main temptations there. There is presented in four different ways, but it's two temptations. One is the temptation to see ourselves as inadequate. Mm -hmm. The second is scarcity. So we're we're tempted by not having enough or believing we don't have enough and believing that we aren't enough. Mm -hmm. When we come back to our center, we're not wasting energy on that anymore. Mm -hmm. You see, one of the beautiful things for me about that experience is I know who I am and I am really um, free now. And I'm getting freer all the time mm -hmm. because the more I 
notice what I notice about what gives me life. This is the examine. This is St. Ignatius of Loyola's work, right? When we do the examine, it invites us to ask ourselves, what gave me life today, right? And there are going to be times when we feel like the life has been sucked out of us. And so we, we then say to ourselves, okay, what drained me? What took life from me? The more I notice what I'm noticing, the more I can do more that gives me life. When I notice what's not giving me life, I make the correction. Yes. If it's a change in attitude, if it's a change in a relationship, I recognize that my being and being in touch with my being is so central to my ability to show up in the world and be with other people. Mm-hmm. But see, if I'm thinking that everything I need is out there and that you're standing between me and what's out there that I need to get so that I can be who I need to be. That's a whole nother kind of uh, paradigm. That's a whole different kind of energy. And so when we come to the place of knowing who we really are and knowing whose we are, Mm -hmm. we transform our consciousness. And then we can begin to operate in what Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. You see, if I recognize that I am created in the image of God, I also know you're created in the image of God. That's right. And that there's an abundance available to us all. Yes. There's no limit except for what I think about, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so in that work, we can begin to heal, especially this divided nation that's been so clearly the lines of demarcation over the past four years have just been a rut in the fields of the consciousness of Americans. And I believe that as we do our own inner work, we can begin to heal this. We can heal this breach. And we can begin to, you know, there's nothing more profound than being amongst people who are like-minded. You will come into that community, that circle, whether it's two or three, or it's over a cup of coffee or tea, or it's over a meal or a a retreat or a, a creative experience together, you will find your cup being filled. But not if you are living from a place of individualism and you're living from a place of scarcity and inadequacy. So good. Juanita, thank you so much for spending this time with me on Makers and Mystics. This has been such an enriching conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Stephen, for having me. Thank you for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This episode was produced by me, Stephen Roach, with music provided by Somewhere at Sea. Be sure to see the show notes of this episode for links to my guest, musical contributor, and links to the Makers and Mystics Creative Collective. We'll see you again next week. And until then, keep creating. The world needs your art.